This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We've spent a lot of time about uh, LRT and, and the implications of the provincial election and how that may influence the, uh, the the municipal election, of course, which is coming up later on this fall. But there's another big project that is uh, that on our radar and should be on our radar, and that's the development of the waterfront, specifically around Pier 7 and 8 the old Discovery Center, you know, where the Williams Coffee Pub is and everything, and the city has some rather grand plans. Well, they invited proposals, and uh, the the developments, uh, well, all of them have, have merit, and all of them have some concerns. We get that. But the preferred developer for the Pier 8 project is going to remain a secret until it's put before council. Actually, they're going to vote on it, and then they're going to tell us what they've decided on, which seems to be somewhat backwards. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Graham Crawford, who's, uh, of course, with History and Heritage Owner, and, uh, well, they call you an activist. Yeah, I know. I don't know what that means. Uh, you're a concerned citizen, and we should all be concerned citizens. I like to think of myself as a critical optimist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that oxymoronic? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in today. Uh, you, you've had a, a long time to look at this, and you've been very passionate about this, and, and we should all be concerned about the waterfront, because uh, as, as we've talked about on this program, Graham, you only get one chance to make it right yeah. and to do it right. And, yeah. and, and they made some good choices. I mean, what they did with the, the waterfront trail, great stuff, and everybody loves that, and there have been some other ideas and other developments that have come along that have been questionable, and some of the people that are in charge of some of the work down there, uh, I think, uh, raises some interesting questions. But this is this is the big project. This is the one that they say is going to really this is going to this is going to define that waterfront. Right. Uh, and uh, I think it's a decision that, that has to be done. I think in public, I think we have a right to know what's going on. Well, I agree. And in fact, I've invested, a, as have many others, invested a ton of time attending probably over a dozen meetings uh, over the past two years, uh, public input sessions. And Bill, I got to tell you, at the end of the day, I'm very disappointed with how our input found its way into the bid package that went out to the, the originally five developers, mm-hmm. then one dropped out. So four developers. Um, that's not their fault, the developer's fault, but I do hold my city accountable for that. Um, it was a game. It was a complete sham, in my opinion. You can barely find reference to the hours and hours and hours of thinking and talking and prioritizing. Um, so this whole thing has been kind of sneaky in my view. Um, and I did a little bit of homework, Bill. I mean, I went to one of the last meetings I went to, uh, Chris Phillips from the city stood up and put up a slide, underlined, boldface, just to make the point. The building is not for sale. This is the Discovery Center. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I find there's a document that's given to the bidders, the, the four bidders, that uses the word purchase. Write a first negotiation for the purchase of the Discovery Center. Now, we can talk about Pier 8, which is different. I mean, it's... Discovery Center is on Pier Hate, but um, the fact it's just another example. Well, I'm, 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 I've got questions about that, and, yeah. and I know you do, and I know you've raised this with staff and with the councillor, with Councillor Farr. Uh, for any one of the people, whether it's uh, you know Urban Core or whether it's Gulf Dream, uh, Waterfront Shores, uh, Tridel, that those are the ones that are in the running for this right now. How can they develop and devise and present a plan that doesn't have something to do with the Discovery Center? I agree. I, it's it's a big part of what's there. Yeah. And and it's right there on the waterfront. Well, in and fact... Has the city told them, hands off? I don't know if they have or not. Well, no, in fact, to the contrary. Uh, back in January, uh, Mayor Eisenberger put forward a motion that was seconded by Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr um, to buy out the Hamilton Waterfront Trust lease so that it was an unencumbered, as they put it in, in the motion, property. So that, that meant they could put it up 
or put it into play slash up for sale. That but, was January. I know, but you see, this I'm, I connect the dots here. At least I try to whenever <laughs> yes, I can. Yes, I know. And, and I had Sam Destro, the, the pre, I guess he's now the previous owner. Maybe he still is. I don't know the legalities here of, of the Discovery Center slash uh, restaurant, of course. Uh, and he maintained from day one that the fix was in, that they were trying to run him out of there. And now I know there's some legalities about paying rent and all this other stuff and what they may or may not have agreed to as far as music and things like that. But he just figured, you know what, they want me out of here because they've got other plans for that. Well, and he he still maintains that. Last time we talked to him, just a little while ago, that he still thinks that was the that was the end game for them. Well, the end game, and of course, we are also the city of Hamilton. The taxpayers of Hamilton are paying uh, three and a half million dollars to the Hamilton Waterfront Trust, an arm's length organization that yeah. essentially we own. That's what they say. So we're going to pay them three and a half million bucks to get them out of their lease on the building, our building. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how that works. We, the, the chair of the Waterfront Trust is Jason Farr, a counselor. Uh, Doug, Councillor Doug Conley and Councillor Tom Jackson are on the board of the Hamilton Waterfront Trust. The very same – three of the same people are going to be voting uh, on what to do with the Discovery Center. I, you know, it's – I don't know that it's a legal conflict of interest, Bill. I'll leave that to the lawyers. But I can tell you that uh, optically it doesn't look good. Um, and there's, you know, it's more than the algae that smells down there. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and this is no news to anybody who's listening to the show because I, I've got concerns as to why there is even a waterfront trust. Uh, because it was set up initially, of course, to, to b- oversee the money that came from the federal government. Well, that money's long gone. Long gone. So now they're just tapping into the city's budgets every year and saying, give us money, give us money. Well, that, we don't need to trust that. Just this, if the city's paying for it, and the city's got three representatives on the board. It is a de facto city committee. Just knock out this, this facade that you need a trust anymore and make it a city decision because it's city land. Well, in fact, and I, I know that legally the board, uh, sorry, the Waterfront Trust could vote to disband, which means we wouldn't have to pay. We wouldn't have to buy anybody out of the yeah. lease because it's our building. There's three councillors on the board. The board actually is councillor heavy. Um, and so, but they're not going to do that. No. So we're st- we're going to pay three and a half million bucks for what? Uh, for some shenanigans. But my issue really goes back to uh, why did Fred Eisenberger put forward a motion in January, which says to me planning and discussions have t- took place before that because he didn't cook this up in ten minutes. Um, what's behind all of this? Why did we decide to, to put the Discovery Center uh, into play, i.e., for sale? Uh, back last year. Who decided that and why did that happen? And I don't know what the answer to that is. See, we're getting into the realm now of, of how council does their business. And, and I know that, as you and I were just talking before we started the segment here, I, I know there are some people in this city that have a philosophical problem with, with in-camera sessions. In other words, going behind closed behind doors. Behind closed but doors. But there are, there are legitimate reasons to do that. Including if you're nego- personnel reasons. Or if you're negotiating your contract. You right. don't want to negotiate in public. I mean, if you're trying to do a land deal or something like that, you know, you, you don't do that because you're giving somebody who's watching that an unfair advantage. Correct. So I get that. But this is not a negotiation. No. They're not negotiating a contract. They're not saying, okay, uh, we're going to negotiate with one of these three. They're simply going to say, this is the one we've chosen. Why can't they do that in public? I don't get that. Well, and this is a staff recommendation. So that we're not, we're not uh, you know, committed to this. Staff are recommending. Uh, the staff will tell you, of course, that uh, the, the bid book uh, included a lot of criteria from, this, from the public which I, don't, I know isn't the case, but they say that. If that's the case, then presumably their criteria for selection was based on public input. Why would we stop now? Why would we put it in front of council, have them vote, 
to commit us to to a single developer without us knowing how the assessment was made. It seems the wrong point to go back behind closed doors, in my opinion, which effectively, that's what this is. It may not technically be that, but that's what it feels like. When they have pretended, at least, to, to make the, these decisions uh, out in public before. No, there's a, there's a public meeting next week, is there not? Well, there's a public meeting, but that's a board to Jason Farr public meeting. That's not a, a city meeting. Uh, and that's Jason Farr collecting ideas from people about the Discovery Center specifically. So it has nothing to do with the winning bidder that they, that they, uh, they will, council will be hearing about uh, on June 6th. Uh, maybe they'll hear before, uh, but officially they hear on June 6th. Yeah, but there's, that's part of the problem and part of the frustration here. This this public meeting about the Discovery Center, supposedly it's on June the 4th. Right. Two days later is when they're <laughs> going to deal with this. So, right. in other words, it, 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 so what you're going to talk about at that meeting is going to have absolutely nothing. The b- report's already been written. It's going to have no impact at all. Well, exactly. And I mean, it took Councillor Jason Farr two months to convene the meeting he promised to hold. And somehow he's going to turn around all of our ideas in 48 hours and and present them to his colleagues in terms of what we think should happen with the Discovery Center. Well, it isn't going to happen. No. It's, it's a game. And, and it needs to be called out as a game. And people should be up in arms about this. And for those of you who've taken your kids down there, grandkids, visitors from out of town to our waterfront and done so proudly, you should be paying attention to what they're doing with the Discovery Center. It's a building we own. It's located where it is, not by accident. It's the most prominent part uh, of the West Harbor. I mean, the view is amazing. The building is ours. It's 15 years old. Uh, It costs $10 million to build. It probably, replacement costs would be $20 million, I bet, by now. And yet, we're looking at getting rid of it. And the question is, why? Why, why, why? Says who? Well, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, Graham, there's only one shot at getting this right. Uh, And we've seen how other cities have developed their waterfronts. Some have done a very good job, some not so good. I mean, everybody holds Toronto up as the example of what not to do. You know, there's all glass and steel there, and you can't even see the water unless you buy one that looks out on there and, you know, pay a million bucks for that. Uh, Burlington's done a nice job on their waterfront. I mean, they've they've got some issues now with with some of the development proposals there, but I mean, that's going to happen. We get that. We're at, we've got a blank sheet here, and and I can't understand why they they simply don't say here's the report. What do you think? Well, this is this is your city. This is going to be your neighborhood for a lot of you. Yeah, I agree. So so they if we focus on Pier Eight, which is where there will be fifteen hundred residential units being built, and tens of thousands of retail uh, square feet of uh, retail space, uh, there will be a linear park that has already been. That was a design contest which the public participated in. Mm-hmm. The winner was announced. Uh, and then council voted. Um, so why we can't know now, why they won't share this with us, uh, is still a mystery, except it isn't really a mystery bill, in my opinion. Uh, they just want to, they want to, you know, lock this thing all down and then say, see what we've decided. And then we can't do a damn thing about it. We can't even offer, I mean, what would be the point of offering an opinion? Uh, because you, nothing changes. Nothing. Here's, this this reminds me an awful lot of the stadium issue from a few years ago, and I hate <laughs> yes. to drag that up, but so I'm I, going to anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, because, and, and obviously, I mean, you and I had differences of opinion about location, etc. Yeah, like that. I mean, that, that's, that's under the bridge now. We, Even we I that. can give that one up now, Bill. I know. <laughs> it's and, where it is. I, nobody likes where it is now, but it is what it is, and we get that. But what bothered me at the time was process, yeah. is how they made that selection. 
Uh, and it seemed as if they said, okay, we really don't care what you want. This is what we've already decided. And, and I know that when I talk to an awful lot of citizens, and you see this at some of the meetings that you attend, you get the feeling that, you know, this, they're just going through the motions there. They already know what they want. And they said, oh, well, we had a public meeting, uh, you know, but we've already written the report, by the way. It's in my bottom drawer. But you go ahead and tell us what you want anyway. And I get the same feeling that this is happening all over again with this project. Well, it is. And as you and I have discussed before, uh, the Discovery Center, I went to every one of those public meetings over, as I say, about a two-year pro- period. The Discovery Center was never mentioned once. Uh, it was not in play. And yet it is very much in play now. And we are about to, we are, we are weeks away. From council voting to select the, the winning bidder as recommended by staff and included in that agreement is the right of first negotiation for the purchase of the Discovery Center. The question is legally is that now what can we do? Are we committed? If, if the developer says, yeah, I'll take it, are we committed to selling it? And well, I, and I think the answer is yes. If you're going to have that discussion on June 6th, why isn't the public allowed to, uh, to hear that? I, well, I agree, Bill. I guess we can go on June 6th or, you know, watch on TV, uh, watch a live stream. But it's too late. Yeah. It's too late. Uh, I don't know why counselors feel that this is a good idea. I don't know why Fred Eisenberger is pushing this the way he is. But he is. Why can't you, as a concerned citizen, get a copy of that report now? As, as counselors, they, they all have that. They have the information. Yes. Well, uh, It's uh, not uh, a confidential. I mean, it's not something that's held under lock and key. Well, I It's not a it negotiation. Is. You're absolutely right. It isn't. It's a staff recommendation. So uh, why can't we? Well, according to Chris Phillips, it's because they would want to sustain the integrity of of the RFP process. And I said, well, what the hell does that mean? Uh, integrity of what? The integrity should be in terms of public input. Share with us everything you have as you can. And Bill, I agree with you that at some point on some things, you got to close the doors and do stuff in private. This is not one of them. What, why? It's a staff recommendation. It's not a legal contract. The, the way the process rolls, I think should roll anyway, is, is they're going to make a selection. They already have, obviously, because the staff so. have already done a report, and they're going to pick one of these four. Uh, and then council is going to either endorse it or give it a thumbs down. If they give it a thumbs down and say, no, we, we think this one's going to be better, that's still not a negotiation. It's a no. choice based on the data that's in front of them. Correct. Once they make a choice, whichever one it's going to be, then do you tell staff, okay, you go away and negotiate a contract and come back to us and, and see what you've got. That's what you do behind closed doors. You don't make the selection behind closed doors. Correct. And by the way, I, I'm not against – the reason I'm here speaking with you is not because I'm against them selecting uh, one of the bidders. Uh, in fact, I mean, I have a declared preference, and mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've said so and I do too, yeah. And so do, so do you. Uh, and oddly enough, I, I think we have the same yeah. one, but uh, because we're hometown boys. But I, what can I tell you? Um, that isn't the problem here. The problem is how we're being treated by our elected officials and senior bu- bureaucrats. It isn't the bidders have done nothing wrong here. No, I don't think they're the ones insisting on silence and secrecy. Uh, we have staff and elected officials who are insisting on it, and it's just plain wrong. Uh, the word is transparency, and we'd like yes. to see a little more of it. I mean, they're going to use that an awful lot as they start campaigning in the summertime, but how about uh, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Uh, keep the heat on, uh, and thanks. thanks so much for coming in today. We'll talk about this, I'm sure, next week. Thanks, Graham. Thank you, Bill. Graham Crawford, uh, the waterfront development, still a key issue in downtown Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
One week from today is election day here in Ontario, and uh, you've heard of that, right? Uh, this uh, It's been a topsy-turvy election uh, with the uh, PCs, of course, with a huge lead at the beginning of this thing. And, well, it's neck and neck, depending on which poll you want to read. But as we, the voters, get to make our decision one week from today, or maybe you're going to vote in one of the advanced polls, you want to have as much information as you possibly can. And, of course, that's what platforms are all about, right? And the NDP, of course, have released their platform and costed it and said, here's you know how we're going to do this. It's a game plan, right? The Liberals, well, their their budget that they gave in the, in the springtime is their de facto platform. Uh, Doug Ford has decided not to do that. He has a long list of things that he's promised, and he's put a price tag on those. But he has yet to tell us exactly how it's, uh, it's going to be funded, which is somewhat of a problem, right? Anyway... Uh, you can look at some of this stuff and get try to get as much of an idea as you can as to as to what kind of shape that's going to leave the province in. Uh, but uh, there has been an independent study done at uh, Western University. Uh, Mike Moffat is an economist and assistant professor at Western University's Ivy Business School, and he has analyzed the platforms of the three major parties and uh, come up with some rather interesting observations. And uh, Mike joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Good to have oh. you with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is <laughs> this is trying to like herd cats, trying to get all the details from these three leaders at any given time. Uh, talk to us about the process and how you, you came up with the data. Yeah, so I started this about uh, 10 days ago because I, I was just getting frustrated. I couldn't really make uh, apple-to-apples comparisons uh, across any of the parties, that they made different assumptions uh, you know, about things like the, the, the reserve uh, that, that set aside uh, you know, in t- case of contingencies, a bunch of other things. So I tried to you know, get everything together to make apples-to-apples comparisons, and I've been able to, you know, solidify the Liberal and NDP numbers. The Tories, there's still a lot we don't know. You know, you know, they've come out with more and more numbers every day, but there's still holes when it comes to infrastructure spending and, and some other platform items. And the biggest one is you know, we don't know how they're going to pay for all these promises. Are they going to run a deficit or are they going to make changes to taxes or spending? We, we really don't know. And there is the frustration. I mean, I, I spent 10 years at municipal government, and I, I I don't consider myself to be an expert with this stuff, but I do know that if you take in less money, you can't offer the same level of service. I mean, anybody that runs a household knows that, uh, yet that seems to be what Doug Ford's proposing. Yeah, and I, I think voters, you know, deserve an explanation. You know, some voters may say, you know what, I, I'm fine with less services. Sure. If that means uh, balancing the budget, I'm okay with that. And other voters would say, no, don't touch the services. I'm, I'm okay with le- running a deficit. So I think that's the important thing that, uh, you know, the parties tell us, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is go- how we're going to finance it, and then let the voters decide uh, what plan makes the most sense. So how do you, let's talk about the numbers and how you came up with this. So like you say, the Liberals, uh, the 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 budget that they proposed in the spring is is really their platform. I mean, you know, Kathleen Wynne talked about how they're going to spend money, where it's going to come from, and, and they've been up front and said, yeah, there's going to be a deficit. As a matter of fact, a pretty huge deficit. Uh, the NDP has said the same sort of thing. Doug Ford says there will be a deficit in the he- first year, but he says they'll get rid of it, but he doesn't exactly say when or how. So so how do you, how do you make those calculations, Mike, based on a lack of information in that case? Yeah, so basically what you have to do is piece together everything that, that you can. Uh, last, you know, 10 days ago, that was a little bit more difficult because they put all these promises in different uh, press releases and uh, other areas like that. Over the last 48 hours, they've kind of aggregated them on their website and it makes it uh, a bit easier. But there, again, there's still holes in that. 
So what I did is I basically went line by line, looked at all the Tory promises, you know, put them into uh, put them into a spreadsheet to try and figure out okay what the numbers look like. And I've got for the final year uh, of a four year mandate. Liberals would run a deficit of about five and a half billion. Uh, the NDP would be about five billion. I've got the Tories right now at seven and a half billion. But again, there's a lot we don't know there. They very well could come in at a smaller number, but that's going to mean you know spending cuts or, or tax increases somewhere, which he says is not going to happen. Yeah, well, so, well, so you're, you're taking for your the, the sake of your estimate, you took him at his word and said, okay, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's not my area to contradict uh, anyone. So I'm taking all the parties at their word and saying, okay, you know, if they're going to do what they say they're going to do, what what does that mean? And again, from the Tories, we don't have any indication of, you know, are there going to be spending cuts or things like that. We had heard at the beginning uh, of, of this race Ford kept talking about $6 billion or 4% uh, efficiencies that he'd find. They've interestingly dropped that language. It shows up nowhere in their their platform. And furthermore, they were talking about specific dates that they would balance the budget, either year two or, or year three. Now they're just saying that they'll do it in a reasonable time frame, but not giving any actual targets. Boy, that gives them some latitude, doesn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly, yeah, you know, uh, uh, reasonable can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. In the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Or the taxpayer in this particular case. So it, it's interesting because I, I, I got that same uh, uh, result when I started going through some of the stuff on the web page as well. They've, they've really changed the language, haven't they, from the, the beginning of this campaign to where they are now? Yeah, that it's gotten a little bit more vague. At the beginning of the campaign, there were specifics about dates, uh, specific amounts about efficiencies that they would find, and they you know indicated that they wouldn't uh, you know cut any jobs, and it was kind of hard to figure that out. But they were at least setting targets. All of those targets have gone away. Now it's just you know vague talk about efficiencies, vague talk about eventually balancing the budget, but no actual target. And I think that that's unfortunate because voters, again, we should. Is it, let's assume Doug Ford gets elected, we should be able to hold him accountable to promises, say, okay, you said you're going to balance the budget by year three. But now, you know, year three can come along and we could say, okay, well, you said you're going to balance the budget. He said, no, 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 I just said I was going to do it in a re- re- responsible time frame. So there's no way for us as, as voters or, or taxpayers to hold a premier accountable when these promises are, are so vague. Let's talk about the other two, and I'll get back to the PCs in a second. The Liberal plan, which which has been laid out uh, by the Premier, uh, I, I don't know that it's going to make a whole lot of difference, judging from the way the polls are right now. I guess she could promise almost anything. She's still in third place, a distant third. But but from an analytical standpoint, Mike, do, these, do the NDP and Liberal platforms make any sense? Do, do the numbers jive? Yeah, I, I think they've done a good job. Uh, the liberals have a pretty big structural advantage here that they, you know, have an entire ministry of finance that uh, can help them out with the numbers. So uh, the, the numbers add up; they they make sense. You might disagree with what they're going to spend on and the tax changes and that kind of thing, but the numbers at least add up. Uh, the NDP had some problems earlier in the the campaign, particularly when it co- came to how they were booking uh, the reserve for their deficits. Mm-hmm. A $1.4 billion hole that both the Tories and Liberals jumped on. So I've gone in and, and corrected that. Um, and, and Horvath has, has said that that was a, a mistake. So, you know, I've accounted for that. But otherwise, you know, nobody else has really found uh, too much to criticize there. So the Liberal numbers, you know, were, were pretty solid. The NDP numbers had a couple mistakes, which have since been corrected. So, 
you know, they allow us to do these kind of comparisons, and we can, you know, agree or disagree on, uh, you know, what they're trying to do, but the numbers at least add up. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too deeply into what about this program, what about that program, because that's for the voters to decide. And, and as you mentioned, Mike, they can make their own value judgments on that. You're just talking this as, as a math exercise. Do the numbers make sense? And, and do the promises about how those numbers are going to shrink or get bigger, whatever they're promising, does that make sense? And, and that's where I've got some concerns with the, the conservative platform, such as it is right now, because you don't get the details about that. And, and, and again, you know, from my standpoint, there's only about three things you can do. We're using it, the word efficiency as a euphemism for cuts. Because if you're going to reduce spending, you're either going to reduce programs, you're either going to fire people, or you're going to sell off properties. I mean, there's, there's only a no- certain number of ways that you can actually do that in government, and he doesn't seem to think he's going to be able to do or doesn't need to do any of that stuff. Yeah, well, I can certainly tell you, you've spent a lot of time in municipal government, because that's it's certainly true that, you know, there's, we, we talk in this euphemistic language. The governments never spend money. They, they invest. They make investments. And furthermore, governments never make cuts. They find efficiency. Yeah. So, you know, this is just politics speak. Uh, you know, I, I think voters see through that and know, you know, what it means when politicians talk about investments and talk about efficiencies. Which is which is the thing that I guess kind of concerns us, and I think should probably concern us, because you got to ask yourself, you know, where the where's that money going to come from? Are they going to borrow it? Uh, if that's the case, then obviously there are implications to that. If they're going to start making cuts, then where are the cuts going to come from? I mean, even on the Sunday debate, I don't know if you spent some time watching that last Sunday evening, but you know, Mr. Ford was simply saying, well, you know, we're going to hire more doctors, more nurses, more of this, because the economy is going to go booming. Well, how are you going to make that happen? Uh, yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, you, you get these sort of uh, opposed promises that on the one hand, we're going to have more of everything, but on the other hand, we're going to spend less money. And, that, you know, I don't think that seems reasonable to, to anyone. So it's it's not clear how they're going to be able to accomplish these promises because they essentially contradict each other. Well, and it's going to be an eye-opener, I think, Mike, to an awful lot of people if, if, to look at your numbers here and actually to, as you ascertain, that the, the, the PC plan, as it stands right now, and this is, as you say, you're just taking the numbers that were given to you from the webpage, uh, are actually going to have the, the largest deficit in, in year four, uh, unless, of course, they decide to do something about it. So it, it, you, what you've asked uh, of, of these numbers here and what you've uh, determined here is actually giving a whole lot of questions for us right now. I mean, it's great to get this information, but I think it raises more questions than it answers. Well, well, it really does, and we don't have a lot of time left. There's only a few days left in the campaign. You know, hopefully we get uh, more uh, information from the Tories and Doug Ford. But, yeah, as it stands right now, taking the Tories' own numbers, so I haven't made a single assumption on what things would cost or anything like that. I'm taking the Tory numbers as given. Uh, right now, in the final year of the mandate, uh, they would be running a deficit that's 2 to $2.5 billion more than either the Liberals or NDP. And, and if there's some magic formula that they're using that we're not aware of, I mean, I'd like to know what it is. Uh, I mean, as an economist, I mean, you understand that, that you know, there's, there's ebbs and flows to the economy all the time. And you know, the, the worst-case scenario is, of course, the depressions and recessions, and there's always going to be peaks. And, and that's probably going to happen no matter who gets elected, I guess, next Thursday. In that four-year cycle of their first term, there's going to be some economic ups and downs. We get that. But uh, the government's policies can certainly influence that. 
Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, you know, changes that they make to taxes and, and spending, you know, are going to affect investment and consumer spending. Absolutely. So that's going to affect the economy. And yeah, the, these, are, these are just targets. And, you know, the economy could come up, you know, better or worse than, than, than we're expecting, which would change things. But it's just an issue of accountability that, uh, you know, if you release figures and then four years out, they're different. You know that allows us to ask tough questions of whoever's premier. Like, why why did this come out differently? And they can explain it one way or another. But if you just come out with sort of vague promises, then you know it's trying to it's like trying to nail Jello to a wall. You know, you know, there's there's no way to say well you didn't keep your word because they never really said anything in the first place. Which, uh, by the way, is one way some people can get elected. I guess. I mean, you know, we we do as a public, I guess, tend to fall for hyperbole from time to time, but. Uh, these are, uh, I think, you know, desperate times. I mean, we, but this is a pivotal election. I know they say that with every election, but given our economic situation right now, and I know you've studied the way things are happening in Ontario, and, and of course, in, in a broader sense, nationally and internationally, uh, you've got to be concerned about the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in areas like Hamilton and London, where I'm from, you know, we've we, we we're starting to see you know manufacturing bounce back, and we're we're hoping that we can grow that uh, more, create jobs, that kind of thing. And yeah, it does feel that uh, you know we have two very different visions here. So you know, it's not it's not in some elections where all the parties are kind of promising the, the, the same thing and have the sort of the same level of competency. These are very, very different agendas. So again, it's, I think it's very important, you know, that the, the, the economy is in transition. It's important to have strong leadership. So this, I feel like, yeah, this, this election matters more than I would say any election since about 1995 or so. Given the state we're in right now, and I, I want to get away from the hyperbole for a second. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. The Ontario economy has rebounded. Uh, it is doing well. It is, I guess, uh, right now uh, projected to be the leading economy in the country uh, in, in 2018. So there's some positive things there. But how fragile is that, Mike? Yeah, well, we certainly are. I mean, there was new numbers out today from Statistics Canada showing wages are, are up uh, 3% over last year, which is the best performance across Canada out, outside of Quebec. So we're ranking second on that. I think the, the big issue uh, is uh, the sort of inequality, regional inequality. So you, you have Toronto and Ottawa and other areas doing well. And then parts of the province, uh, again, particularly kind of small town southwestern Ontario, really haven't recovered from the manufacturing decline of the last 10 to 15 years. So I think that's a sort of fragility that the Toronto sectors are, are doing fine. You know, Ottawa's kind of insulated from that, uh, you know, because it's a government town. Uh, but there are areas of the province that are, are still struggling and, and need support. Well, and you saw that in London. Of course, we've certainly seen it in Hamilton. I mean, as I used to drive our daughter back and forth to, uh, from Western uh, back into Hamilton here. I mean, uh, just along Oxford. What was the name of that big plant that shut down about three, four years ago? Uh, electromotive diesel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, huge, huge parking lot. There are a lot of jobs that were lost there, and I'm sure everybody, every time somebody drives down Oxford Street in London and sees that, that's a reminder that, hey, that's how bad things can get, and it could happen again. Well, well, absolutely, and it's still in a lot of places ha haven't recovered. So I, I spent a lot of time in St. Thomas, which is just south of London. And yeah. you, you had Fort Talbotville, you had Sterling Truck, and, and those jobs haven't haven't been replaced. You know, there are still a lot of people who've been on long term unemployment and are looking for you know something something to come back. So, so absolutely, I think voters are in, in a lot of these areas are cranky and, and rightfully so because, as you point out, they drive past these every single day. 
it's a constant reminder of, of what used to be and, and what's been lost. Well, and you'd like to think that our elected officials and whoever's going to be the premier after the next Thursday uh, would take that into account and be able to react. I mean, we just found out, uh, confirmed the story that we're going to talk about in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, Wilbur Ross down in the States has already declared now that they're going to impose steel tariffs. That's going to have an impact on the Hamilton economy and the Ontario economy, for that matter. And and you'd like to think that the leaders are going to say, okay, you know what, we're going to have to pivot with our platform because we have to do something different. But it doesn't say, if, if you don't know where you're starting and where you're going, how can you pivot? Well, well, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, this, this is a clear time that uh, these tariffs do, you know, pose a danger to the Ontario economy. And again, I think that just shows the importance of the election, because whoever the new premier is, is going to be dealing with the White House directly and, and uh, you know, working uh, with the federal government to try and convince the White House that this is not, not in their best interest. So, you know, this is difficult times with the NAFTA renegotiation going on. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. So this is this is a time where, where leadership is more important than ever. Well, and that's why they say campaigns matter, and certainly platforms matter, and the numbers do matter. Is there a, a, a website or something that they can go to, Mike, to get the uh, information that you've already done here? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, Twitter's probably the best bet. If you okay. go to Twitter, go to Mike P. Moffitt's, uh on Twitter. That's two F's and two T's. Uh, I've linked uh, to this uh, Google sheet that I, I've come up with. And yeah, I highly recommend to everyone just kind of kick the tires on this thing and see, see if it makes sense. Um, you know, because this is essentially a crowdsourced exercise. So I'm trying to pull together as much information as I can. So if there's something I don't know, you know, I would appreciate it if you flipped it to me. Well, listen, thanks for crunching the number. Force and thanks for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. Take care. Mike Moffat, of course, assistant professor at the Ivy Business School at Western University. And and like I said, look at the numbers. And it's not it's not an evaluation nor a judgment on the programs that are being offered. It's not whether or not you want a all day daycare or not a, whether you want whatever it is that are being proposed by the three leaders right now. It's simply taking the numbers that they themselves have said. Here's what we're gonna do, here's what we're gonna spend. And Mike's simply projecting that and saying, well, can you get rid of a deficit? Is the economy going to grow? And it's uh, it's an eye-opening experience. I mean, they're all going to run deficits, apparently. And they're, apparently all the deficits are going to last at least four years. And uh, the conservative numbers, as they have been presented right now, would show that they're actually going to run the largest deficit of three parties. Didn't see that one coming, did you? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, uh, it's something that we had thought was going to happen, uh, something that had been threatened, and uh, it is a reality now. Just a few moments ago, U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross announced that, yes, the United States will be imposing tariffs on Canadian steel and Canadian aluminum. And uh, there's no messing around here. Now, remember, they had initially uh, given us a pass on this. I mean, they did impose tariffs on other countries. Uh, some time ago, but at the time uh, Donald Trump said he was going to give Canada and Mexico a pass, uh, well, not forever, but he says while the NAFTA negotiations are going on, well, we still don't have an NAFTA deal, but uh, this was the de- the deadline for this. This is, uh, you know, it's it's worn out now, it's gone, it's expired, and uh, Wilbur Ross says, yeah, uh, effective at midnight tonight, there will be a 25% tariff on uh, Canadian steel and a 10% tariff on uh, Canadian aluminum. That's obviously going to have some sort of an impact, uh, in, and not just the Canadian economy, certainly, in a, in a broader scale, but the local economy here. I mean, you know, steel is not our only industry here, but, I mean, it's still a big part of our economic drivers here in this city. 
and uh, may not employ as many people, but it's still something that, that matters to an awful lot of folks. I mean, you know, Marcelo Middle DeFasco, Stelco just trying to get back on their feet right now. This is not the kind of news they wanted to hear. To uh, talk about the implications, we welcome uh, Ian Lee back to the program from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. You're not surprised by this, I assume. No, no, I'm not. Um, I guess I'm, I'm one of those analysts, I'm probably in a minority, that uh, believe that uh, Trump is crazy like a fox, and I've said this many times when you and I have talked. And secondly, although he does do braggadocio and threats and all that, I also believe he backs it up. And uh, so I think what this means is as follows. It's not that he's going after our steel industry. He's just doing that for leverage over us. He's not going after our aluminum industry. He's doing that for leverage. What leverage? What's he trying to leverage? In the NAFTA room, this is my interpretation, inside the NAFTA negotiation room, we, Canada and Mexico, haven't compromised as much as he wants. And I'm talking about dairy, supply management, and uh, telecom, to name but two, because of leaks coming out of Washington in that regard. And, you know, a lot of listeners and Canadians would say, well, that's good, stand up to Donald Trump. Well, okay, if you like to cut off your nose to spite your face to make a point, good for you. But, you know, my late mother used to tell me there's not very much point in cutting off your nose to spite your face unless you really want to hurt yourself. And uh, where I'm going with this is I have maintained from the very beginning of these negotiations, we should be focused like a laser beam strategically on the big enchilada. What is it? Access guaranteed access to the largest market in the world called the United States with a dispute mechanism. Everything else should be negotiable to achieve that end. Everything else meaning supply management and dairy, uh, access to our telecom, um, uh, airlines, and so forth. We, unfortunately, have said over and over publicly, our government has said, no, we're going to stand up to Donald Trump to protect the 9,000 multimillionaire dairy farmers who are charging dairy prices approximately double what they would be to consumers if we didn't have supply management. They're going to stand up to Donald Trump to keep out American tell cell phone companies so Canadians can continue to pay some of the highest cell phone fees in the world. This is upside down and backwards. We are not there to protect two industries, one very tiny, dairy farmers, and the other, okay, telecom is important, but the idea that they're going to vanish just because we let in an American company is nonsense. They'll just have to compete like all the other companies. But my larger point is we have not focused on why we are in the negotiations in the first place, to ensure we continue to have access to the U.S. market and with a dispute mechanism so bullies like Trump can't cheat after the fact. And we're focused on the wrong level. We're focused on protecting 9,000 dairy farmers and, some, and the telecom unions and the telecom capitalists. And that's not the purpose of trade negotiations, is to get access to the entire market in the U.S. There's, I'm glad you connected the dots, because you can't look at the story about steel tariffs in isolation, obviously, because the, the two are very much interrelated. Yes. And uh, I, the companion story, I guess, to the scene, it was, was something we heard, it was reported, I believe, in the Washington Post earlier this week, that there was a, a, an agreement in principle with NAFTA between the three countries, and apparently, according to the story in the Post, yeah. Trump tore it up and said, no, not not happening. I, don't, I, I guess uh, they, they presented it, Lighthizer presented it to him, and he said, no, I don't like this, I'm, and he just threw it back at them. Yeah, I think what he was, uh, I read that uh, article, and I think what he was, and I'm not here to defend Donald Trump, believe me, because I don't agree with his views at all on trade, but that doesn't matter. He's there, and he's the president, and we've got to deal with him. Uh, but I, I think what he said was, 
I, you didn't get enough concessions yeah, from it. Canada and Mexico. He wasn't saying, I'm throwing this out, don't come and talk to me, I don't want an NAFTA deal. What he said was, I want more concessions. <laughs> and, 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 I, and that's the mindset, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is, yeah, there's this idea of a deal and you want to negotiate this, but Trump doesn't just want a deal, he wants a victory. He, uh, he, exactly. And, you know, if, he, if it's victory that he seeks, and the, the, the rumors and the leaks are suggesting that, that he wants to you'd be able to go out and brag about the cows, you know, the, the milk, and they got access to the Canadian milk market because this is a sticking point with most Americans couldn't care less. Uh, probably most Canadians couldn't care less. But you talk to the dairy farmers and the governors in those states, and I'm talking Wisconsin and New York State. Wisconsin's the second largest dairy-producing, milk-producing state in the entire U.S., Speaker Ryan's home state, uh, New York, um, Chuck Schumer, the Democrat, that's the number three milk-producing state, and this is really important to them. And the idea that we would risk losing a deal uh, to, to for 9,000 dairy farmers who are charging us too much in the first place, I just think is, is one of the most preposterous ideas imaginable. And, and Bill, it, re- it opens us to retaliation by the Americans against really important industries called steel and aluminum. And the idea that we're risking steel and aluminum, which really are important, for 9,000 dairy farmers in about 20 ridings in, in Quebec and eastern Ontario, where I live, is just, I mean, this is just scandalous almost, because we're, we're, we're not being strategic and looking at the greater good of all Canadians. They're just focused on the dairy farmers who admittedly donate a lot of money political parties. But that is, should not be why we, we should not be defending them and risk getting whacked as we're about to for, on the steel industry and the aluminum because of we are, we're not conceding anything on the, on the dairy front. But we're heading down a road here that I think is, is very, very uh, problematic. And Christia Freeland's already responded. This is all news, of course, within the last half hour of it. As you mentioned, we knew it was coming anyway. But she said that they're going to retaliate. Now, Canada going against the United States in a trade war, that's kind of like bringing a slingshot to a gunfight, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're 10 times bigger. Uh, and it's not just sheer size. They need us. We need them way more than they need us. Their exports, because their economy is so gargantuan, their total exports are a very tiny share. Even though they have huge exports and imports, it's a tiny percentage of their GDP. Whereas we are much more dependent because we're a small, open economy like Sweden and other small, and small, I'm talking population. Most Canadians get, I think, mixed up by the fact that, you know, because we're a, a very large country geographically, we think we're a very large and important country uh, in terms of the geopolitics, and we're not. We're not China, we're not the U.S., we're not Russia. We've got 36 million people less than the state of California, and the idea that we are going to get into a trade fight with the U.S. and win is just unbelievably preposterous. It's like a six-year-old getting into a fight with a guy in the NHL, and, and you think the six-year-old's going to win the fight. I mean, it just ain't going to happen. The political reality here, though, and we talked earlier about Trump wanting a victory, uh, and, and, and the overriding uh, factor here is, of course, there were midterm elections, yes. uh, which are going to be happening in November, as, as we've talked about in the United States. Uh, and, and Trump's presidency, I, I think you could make an argument, rides on what's going to happen in that election. And if the Democrats get control of the House, uh, they could start impeachment hearings. There's a yep. whole lot of stuff that they could do there to really mess things up. Yep. So, so he's he's looking. This is this is the tool he needs to try to win that house. 
Yes. And, and so, and again, I, I want to emphasize, I'm not here to defend Donald Trump. I'm just trying to understand and interpret him. Exactly. There's a lot of Canadians are saying, oh, he's crazy, he's irrational. Actually, I think what he's doing is highly rational. He realizes his job is on the line. Well, most Canadians, if your job is on the line, you know that old phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what he's doing. He understands he's got to maintain, retain control of the House on the, uh, the uh, U.S. House of Representatives in Republican hands, because if the Dems get in, there, there's lots of Dems already advocating impeachment. And an impeachment bill starts in the House. It cannot start in the Senate. So yes, the Republicans are going to keep control of the Senate, but they won't have control of the House if they lose it. And the, that's where an impeachment bill starts. And it's going to just mess up his last two years as president and probably uh, ensure he won't get reelected in 2020. So his job is on the line. And in his mind, whether we agree or not, he's decided he needs more concessions to be able to go out on the campaign trail and uh, in the summer and the fall. And my argument to the Canadian negotiators and to Christia Freeland is, don't focus on dairy and telecom. Focus on the big picture of maintaining access to the U.S. market and making sure we none of our products get whacked with tariffs, whether it be aluminum or steel or cars or any other industry, and stop focusing on these two small, very small or relatively small industries. These are only two industries out of several hundred industries in our country. And by the way, just from what I can ascertain from reading U.S. newspapers and what, and some of the uh, the political shows down there, this is not a Republican Democratic issue. This is an American issue because yes. the Democrats are just as much uh, in, in favor of what Trump's suggesting here about tariffs and getting a better deal for the states as, as the Republicans are. I, uh, Bill, I couldn't agree with you more on this point. This is again one of the uh, urban legends in Canada. Is, is this Trump guy is us off all by his little lonesome doing this, and once he leaves office, it'll be business as usual, and nobody else thinks like. Donald Trump. That's just nonsense. The Democrats are not a trading party. They voted against NAFTA in 1993. The only way that Bill Clinton got NAFTA through the House and Senate was because the Republicans supported it. His own party went against him. The Democrats are way more protectionist than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump's protectionist, let's be clear. But the Dems are even worse. So, I mean, we should be thinking about that because if the Dems get into the Congress and get control of the House, NAFTA will not be going through that House with a successful vote, which is another reason why we need to get that vote through before uh, July 1, excuse me, January 1, 2019, because the new Congress is sworn in uh, roughly one week after the new year. And, and if the Dems are controlling the U.S. House of Reps, I do not believe they're going to be passing an NAFTA bill, no matter how attractive it is to everybody. Okay, so the, the tariffs that were announced, and as we mentioned, they go into effect at midnight tonight, uh, is not a shot across the bow. This is a shot that hits the, the, the boat. I mean, how does how does Canada respond? Or how sh- I, I mean, Christy Freeland's already talked about getting yeah. in a retaliation uh, mode, but I mean, the reality here is that may be what they're saying in front of the microphones, but behind closed doors, I'm, I've got to assume it's a different attitude. I, I hope so. I, I say that. I'm not changing the subject at all, but I look at what they did on pipelines, and they made a whole bunch of mistakes that go back three or four years that, that caused them to land where they landed two days ago. That is to say, they demonized the National Energy Board, they demonized the process to approve pipelines, and then lo and behold, guess what? Everybody's against the process to approve pipelines, and we can't get a pipeline built. Where I'm going with that is they've walked down this road so far on the trade negotiations. You know, we're going to stand up to Trump on every one of them. We're not going to concede a thing. Well, if you're not going to concede a thing, then what the hell are you doing in the trade negotiations? That's why you have negotiations. I'll give you this if you give me that. 
It's like negotiating to buy a car. It's like labor negotiations. We just went through it at Carleton. Uh, York is going through it right now. You know, the two sides have to put some water in their wine. I know these are all cliches, but you've got to give something up if you want to get something. And the Canadian side has been saying, no way, no way, we're not going to give up anything. Well, if you're not going to give up anything, why are you there? What are you negotiating? And, and so I'm saying that they should be saying, what do we really absolutely must have out of this, and what can we give up? And we should be saying we've got to have access to the U.S. market without tariffs, without games and a dispute mechanism, and everything else is negotiable. But I'm, I hope Christy uh, Freeland goes down that road, but they're going to have to do a lot of walking back if they do. I hear from farmers every time we bring this this topic up about the, the, the supply management aspect, and uh, obviously they're protecting their their turf, and I get that. I understand. Yes. I'm sympathetic. Yes. I mean, I nobody wants to be the one that says, "Hey, sacrifice my uh, my yeah. living." But That's I, right. But but they've already done that, Ian. I mean, the the, the European trade deal that they they yes. negotiated with, of course, over, over actually the the Harper administration and, and the Trudeau administration, they gave up supply management. I mean, it was it was on the table there. They negotiated yeah. it. Why are they being so adamant about it with the U.S.? You're uh, they they didn't quite uh, I agree with you, Bill. Oh, it's not gone, but I they mean, they opened up. They gave yeah. the Europeans. I think it was five percent of the uh, of the dairy market. I think it was five. I could be wrong. It might be three and a half or five. But they opened it up. They didn't eliminate supply management, and the dairy farmers were really mad about that. In fact, uh, Harper had promised to give them before he was defeated. He had promised to give them. I think it was five billion dollars in compensation that's for right, even yeah. opening it up a crack. But that's that's the kind of compromise they could be saying. Christian Freeland could be saying, "Look, we're not going to get rid of supply." management, but we're going to open it up somewhat. We'll give you, you know, the dairy, U.S. dairy farmers uh, access to 10% of our, our milk and eggs and uh, cheese market or something. You can always slice and dice in negotiations. It's not zero sum, you know, and, and I'm hoping that they don't just do the we're going to stand up to you and we're going to get into a trade war because it's not productive. It's not in our strategic self-interest. It's not about buckling into the bully. It's about what is in our best interest uh, for our country, for Canadians, and getting into a trade war with with a con- company country that's ten times bigger than us, I don't think is productive. I don't think it's going to help us. Well, stock markets are going to react. Uh, the government's going to react. We'll see what the next steps are. Ian, thanks as always for the time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Thank Ian you. Ian Lee from, uh, of course, the uh, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.